Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, this is the week in the month when we listen to a sermon, and the sermon today is by our friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Devine. He's Associate Professor of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. He teaches history and doctrine. He's the author of a number of books, including Replant, How a Dying Church Can Grow Again, and Bonhoeffer Speaks Today. And the sermon we're going to listen to today was preached at Beeson in one of the series we've done recently on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's entitled, Come Out into the Tempest of Living. Dr. Smith, what are we going to hear from our friend Mark Devine? Dr. Mark Devine is going to use Bonhoeffer as a foil uh, to talk about Christ. The key word is privilege. And since Bonhoeffer came from a privileged family, uh, had to forsake privilege in order to serve Christ. That's important for him. He's going to show Christ who had privilege, forsaking his privilege in order to condescend and become a servant in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And then he's going to challenge us as a school. We have privilege. Students have privilege. And since we are privileged, then we are called to service. He bases this upon what Bonhoeffer said. One of his favorite lines is, to follow Jesus is to get our hands dirty, that Mm -hmm. idea of that. So this idea of service is crucial for Bonhoeffer. Themes that are really important. This is highly Christological. Uh, He's going to deal with progressive sanctification. Uh, Implicitly, he's going to, I think, indict prosperity theology, Mm. uh, that it's not about privilege, it's about service. Uh, He's going to deal with this matter of separation, Christ a great divider, uh, and that it calls for separation and division in order to do the uh, will of God, worship, fellowship, justification through alien righteousness, etc. Dean George, two um, divine imperatives Dr. Divine brings out. Number one, that Christ calls us to come out, and then he calls us to go. So it's come out and go ye. And he closes the sermon in a creative way, uh, eschatologically. Come out and go ye are consumed or swallowed up into no more where there will be no more death and no more mourning and no more sorrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so this sermon for me spoke to our uh, Beeson of Indian School and those who were in attendance that day that God has called us to come out in order to go so that ultimately he who came out and came to us will bring us together as the people of God And we will be God's children, and God will be our God. Come out to go back. Yeah. Let's listen to Dr. Mark Devine as he preaches in Hodges Chapel. Come out into the tempest of living. Reading from Acts chapter 2, 7 through 8. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The word of the Lord. Make up your mind. Come out into the tempest of living. 
a line from a poem Bonhoeffer penned in prison. It was written late, if anything written by a man who lived only 39 years can be considered late. When Bonhoeffer said or wrote something late, it was much more likely to be received as strange by those who heard it or wrote it. It was much more likely to be received as enigmatic, as a radical disruption in his thought. It was the late sayings that were latched on by the death of God theologians in the 60s who thought in Bonhoeffer they found inspiration for their despairing predictions of the demise of the gospel and of the church. Religionless Christianity, worldly Christianity, Bonhoeffer said these things. But this line, make up your mind, come out into the tempest of living, is not some visitor from an alien world crashing in upon Bonhoeffer's psyche under the pressure of prison. It had a long gestation period in Bonhoeffer's reflection, reflection upon the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ in this world? An idea and a concern that reached far back, back into Bonhoeffer's teenage years, back to the young musical prodigy that many thought would enjoy a spectacular career as a concert pianist. Back to the fiercely competitive young ball player. Back to the not yet pacifist, tough, rich kid who would punch your lights out if he thought you needed it. Back to the son of the famous Karl Bonhoeffer, the founder of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Berlin. Back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer with the silver spoon in his mouth, fawned over by a mansion full of tutors and maids and nurses. Back to a world that seemed shielded from the storms of life, shielded, it seemed, from the tempest of living, at least until one of his older brothers was felled in what they called the Great War, which was really the crazy war, the war fought in the trenches. The elite of Berlin made their way to the opulent and cushy Bonhoeffer enclave, where they kicked back for tea and crumpets, fine wine, and discussed the great questions of politics and culture, on Friday evening, it might be the premier historian and theologian of the day, Adolf Harnock, come to call. On Sunday, perhaps it would be the Nobel Prize winning physicist, Max Planck, 
To cap off an evening, five or six of the household full of Bonhoeffers might regale their famous guests by drawing out their instruments and putting on a little concert by themselves. Just a little slice of Downton Abbey is what nurtured Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer alternately loved and loathed his station in life. He embraced the special benefits while chafing at the distinctive deprivations of his privileged world. On one side, the education, the athletics, the symphony, access to movers and shakers, the opportunity to travel. He loved it all. And yet he was sure that these same privileges prevented him from truly comprehending the lives of most people. And he was right in many ways. Bonhoeffer craved connection with everything human. And he hated the barrier his wealth erected between him and almost every other human being on the planet. The others, he called them. The others. He longed to see it all and hear it all and taste it all. From childhood on, Dietrich welcomed the great adventure that was life. He always thought he wanted to plunge into the tempest of living. I think his face on the worship folder today reflects it. In him and in Eberhard Baitka. They wanted to be out there. But he felt separated. He felt divided. The Bible came to his rescue. The gospel clarified matters. It was something of a relief to Bonhoeffer when he discovered that the great divide in this world, the greatest divide, is not one conjured by human beings or defined by anything like wealth or social position. The great divide, the real separation, is divinely precipitated. It comes down from heaven. He comes down from heaven and He divides the human race from the get-go. His name is Jesus Christ. And when He comes, He creates division immediately. On one side, stinking shepherds, stargazing, gift-bearing orientals, and eventually a wild man from the desert wearing camel's hair and eating bugs. And on the other side, a murderous king killing newborns in a rampage in a desperate, in the desperate hope that one of them will be him. The little would-be king. In the manger. Division from the get-go. Separation might have been Jesus' middle name. 
What with all the talk about He who is with me, He who is not with me is against me, the separating of sheep from goats, the casting of non-bearing fruit trees into fires. There's a lot of division going on. Obedience to Jesus Christ promised not to ameliorate matters, but to exacerbate them. Father, Jesus said, I'm not praying just now for those who are in the world. I want you to be clear about this. I'm praying, but I'm not praying for everybody. I'm not praying for those who are in the world. I'm praying right now for those you have given me out of the world, separated out from the world, because they're going to need my prayers in this world, because in this world, just like I told them, they're going to have trouble. And it's all my fault in their case because they didn't choose me. I chose them. They're going to cast you out of the synagogue and put you on trial and then pat themselves on the back and say they're serving God by seeing you killed. Well, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed. Jesus Christ, the great divider, a divider like none in history, the divider of history and of humanity, Everyone who follows him, Bonhoeffer said, learns that sooner or later, usually the hard way. Bonhoeffer made his peace with that other separation. He learned to accept that lesser separation that wealth and class produced. He even learned to make use of it. Being a famous Bonhoeffer might actually facilitate a plunge into the tempest of living that he was sure Christ had called him to. Bonhoeffer would wield the prerogatives of privilege. That punctuated his life. His candidacy for membership in the Let's Pursue the Death of a Dictator Club depended on him being who he was. That's why he was noticed. When you want to kill Hitler, you need some people like Bonhoeffer, apparently. They found him. Had not the Apostle Paul played the card of Roman citizenship to prolong his life and possibly gain an audience with Caesar? It was precisely Bonhoeffer's family ties that made it possible for him to become a double agent within the intelligence service of the German army and eventually put him in a position to offer to personally deliver the bomb that had Hitler's name on it. Prison officials went scrambling when they discovered that their new inmate was not just any old Bonhoeffer. He was from the Bonhoeffers. He's the youngest son of Karl Bonhoeffer. They jerked him out of that bare cell where he'd been housed and put him in a suite with a library, visiting privileges, and all sorts of little perks and privileges. Bonhoeffer enjoyed them all, took them all. Bring it on. His privilege. 
His privilege also won him an opportunity to escape. There was no way it was going to fail. Just decide. The clock's ticking. Do you want out or do you want to stay in? He knew that his escape would prompt the arrest of his family. And so he said no. The silver spoon still sticking out of his mouth. He made that decision. He made that decision with the silver spoon as well. God, Bonhoeffer insisted, confronts every believer in every congregation with two great imperatives. And the first one is this. Be ye separate. Come out from among them. Divide yourself. What partnership has righteousness with wickedness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Whoever follows Him has to come out. Thus are His followers sanctified. Now, God may be doing a work in the life of an individual that is progressive called sanctification, but it's very important to recognize that that's not what Bonhoeffer's talking about. They come out. He separates them out. He sanctifies them. He separates them to Himself for holy use. They are thus sanctified. Because of this separation, this divinely instigated division, Bonhoeffer's vision of the place of the church in the world and of the life of the Christian took on a certain shape, a distinctive shape. It took on a dynamic rhythm, a swinging like the swinging of a pendulum. And at one extreme of that pendulum, at one extreme of that pendulum, there is the stark, concrete, visible separation. Church, prayer, worship. All of these words were precious to Bonhoeffer. Meditation upon the Word. Refuge. Hiding place. Separated out. Come out. For what? For worship. For the Word. For fellowship in the body of Christ. Come out. But note this well. For Bonhoeffer, this place of separation. Because there's only going to be separation. There's going to be separation in the tempest. But this station of separation is not permanent in this world. We can't, if we're going to follow Jesus, stay there. Not yet, at least. Not in this world. In this world, the place of retreat must serve as a way station from which one knows one must go out again. A place of recovery and restoration and edification for its own sake, yes, but also for the sake of going out, for the sake 
of work, of happy duties, privileged work out there in the tempest, in the storm, where Jesus went and where He is. Back and forth. Because the second divine imperative we're all faced with is go ye. Come out. Be separate. And as these separated ones, go back. Go ye. Jesus said, I'm not praying for those who are in the world, but in the same gospel, He said, for God so loved the world. In another place, Jesus said, all power in heaven and earth is given to me. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of power. We don't yet see all things under His feet. (laughs) Boy, ain't that the case. But it is. You have to believe that. All power. That's why He told them. That's why He told them He had all power. It wasn't obvious. All power has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. It's not just abstract power that we just run up to and try to get our bendy straws in and suck for whatever we want to do with it. All power has been given to Him for a purpose. All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go. Well, that's what it's for. That's that's what it can be used for. There's no power of God transferred to us that then is our power. Holy Spirit power is always God's in a way that it's never ours. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. You don't pull Him out of a holster, fire it at somebody. It's God. Wait here in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And you'll end up cleaner and cleaner, and you won't need to tap into that expensive forgiveness I bought for you. You'll you'll need that less and less if you'll get that Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. Wait here, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And I hope you'll be my witnesses. He didn't say that either. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, And you shall be my witnesses. Does that ever happen to you? You didn't decide to be His witness. Something happened to you. And like most people, you start talking about what matters to you and what happened to all these people. I can't witness. I don't have the gift of that. But boy, they can talk about their soap operas and they can talk about their grandchildren and they can talk about football. People talk about what they care about. Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And in order to be my witnesses, you're going to have to go. From Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. This is not what God hopes will happen. This is what He's been doing. And we're part of the product of it, thanks be to God. He separates them out and separates them back. Jesus Christ didn't empty Himself and temporarily set aside the prerogatives of His deity so He could come down here and hunker down in a spiritual retreat on a mountain with His heavenly Father. 
He did that, but he didn't come to do that. He came down here to reconcile the world to himself, and that's what he did. It's a rescue operation. And the rescuers got to plunge in, and he did. Into the tempest where those who are in danger were. He came to take on enemies and defeat them. Dr. Dorset came sashaying in the other day with his with his collar on, just as cute as a button. So one of his colleagues said, well, why are you wearing that? Well, he didn't have to think about that long. He said, I'm in a war. I've got my uniform on. What are you dressed for? (laughs) He cares about how people dress. You know, when I slip out of my office in my sock feet, I don't want to run into him. <laughs> he came to do battle, and that battle happens in the tempest. Jesus remains separated when he does it, even as he plunges in. He's taking on enemies in the desert, on the cross, and in hell. When he got down there, he showed that he already had what he wouldn't use completely till later. He had the keys. He let a few people out, stroll around Jerusalem for a while. Shore leave. When he sends his disciples out, They have to follow where He went. Not to do what He did. Only He can do that. That's been done. He doesn't like it when we try to do what He did. It it pathetically and abortively tries to siphon off His glory. But we do have to go where He went and bear witness to what He did and help like He did. We're deployed. And that deployment is not best comprehended as imitation, but following. Following is different than imitation. There there are places where we need to imitate Jesus, but, but not mainly. He's busy being the second person of the Trinity. And we're never to be that. We follow. Point to Him. Point away from ourselves. The main thing we're to do is not say, look at me, don't you want to be like me? Now, some of you are doing so well, I guess that, that can work. But most of us need to point away from ourselves to Him. Don't blame Him for the gap between me and Him. He said this to them. Jesus says some wild things. He said, don't be afraid of the ones who can just kill you. Who talks like that? We're afraid. Why are you afraid? We think they might kill us. Well, don't be afraid of the people who can just kill you. Don't be afraid. In fact, let me show you. I'll show you first how to do that. He came across as a smart aleck to a lot of people. The pilot. 
Don't you know that your life's in my hands? Don't you know? Jesus, you won't have any power over me unless my Father gives it to you. And also, also, since you provoked me to talk, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it. I can take it up. I can take it up. That's true for you, would-be followers. They can take it. I can take it up. That's what I'm going to do. Every one that my Father gave me, not going to lose any. Raise them up. You believe that? Well, you can't live the same if you believe that. You're a different person if you believe that. You're you're on the way to being fit to to follow. Two theological convictions that I want to note that nurtured Bonhoeffer's confidence to write and mean it when he wrote, make up your mind, come out into the tempest of living. The first, in certain ways, seems very straightforward, kind of predictable. Not only because Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran, but certainly his deep shaping by Luther is evident here. I've already used the word sanctification several times because Bonhoeffer used it too. And he related it in special ways to the Christian life, the way the whole tradition has. But there's another word that for Bonhoeffer was more foundational, foundational and comprehensive that shapes the Christian life. And that word is justification. Justification by grace through faith. The separation out of the world is accomplished by the justification of the sinner. And just as decisively, the believers and the church are separated back to the world as justified sinners. They remain justified sinners. In fact, their witness to Jesus Christ depends upon their being still justified sinners. For Bonhoeffer, sanctification does not attenuate the fact or the need for their justification. Justification is not a way station along a road at the end of which one finally becomes holy in and for oneself and no longer needs to live by the forgiveness of sins. The sanctified ones are precisely those who no longer live. But Christ lives in them. They are precisely those who know, who long not to progress in holiness if that means needing less and less forgiveness as their own righteousness grows and grows. No. The sanctified ones are precisely those who long to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of their own. Not now and not ever. If we're able to stand in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, it will still be on the basis of an alien righteousness. 
Alien righteousness here. Alien righteousness along the way. Alien righteousness forever. That's gospel. There's good reason why Jesus remains the lamb slain from the foundation of the world around the throne of the apocalypse. There's good reason why the wounds our sins put in His body are still visible. Because those wounds remain the sole basis for our belonging to Him, not just here but there too. No one can please God without faith. And faith lives from its object. And its object is never anything that's in us or that we bring to the table. So whatever we want to say about progressive sanctification, it's got to agree with that. Otherwise, we live a lie, siphon off His glory. What does all of this have to do with making up our minds and coming out into the tempest of living? Well, the excerpt on the front of your worship folder, it, it also was, was something that was written late. It was, it was written very late. What I didn't include in this quote is that just before it, and I did, I did this strategically, because a lot of evangelicals are snuggled up to Bonhoeffer, and I like that. I want that to happen. But they're also snuggled up to him with the cost of discipleship. And it's cost of discipleship. It's great. Two thumbs up on, on the cost of discipleship. I mean, come on. That's a test of somebody's Christianity. But just before this, he said, I stand by what I wrote there. But the cost of discipleship kind of came at the end of a certain road. The end of a certain road. And it's the end of that road of trying to be something, trying to become something. What's happened? What's happened to him? Justification by grace through faith has taken on a new meaning. One must completely abandon any attempt to make something of oneself. Really? whether it be a saint or a churchman, a righteous man, an unrighteous man. And the doing, the giving up on that fits a person to make up their minds and come out into the tempest. Because they have nothing to be kept from contagion anymore. They're going to be a justified sinner there or here. And He's called us out there. For Bonhoeffer, there is a way of misunderstanding God's sanctification, of forgetting that sanctification is a divine deployment of justified sinners for witness and service, that holiness is not some new infused property or power that passes into our possession, that we make it grow into weapons that we pull out of a holster in fire. No, the Holy Spirit empowerment remains God's power. When we get this wrong, Bonhoeffer said, it, it threatens to drag us back under the law 
to burden us with abortive attempts at self-justification, to embrace a piety that curves us in on ourselves, wrongly concerned about and preoccupied with ourselves so much so that there's little energy or attention left to really invest in love for God and others. Because we've stupidly tried to take up the sanctifying of ourselves that belongs to God. For Bonhoeffer's sanctification is first and foremost recognition that we have been separated for holy use and then yielding to Him. If we go wrong, we'll find ourselves trapped and separated from the world and unable to obey the call to go ye. Where freedom and hope and courage and witness and love should flourish, we find instead self-absorption, timidity, fear, fear of contagion, or worse, nonchalance concerning those for whom Christ died. We pour over the Scriptures and we read the divine imperative, Go ye. But somehow we can't make up our minds to come out into the tempest of living. In disobedience, parading as concern for holiness, we might settle for retreat into the holy huddle or ecclesial ghettos of denominational or non-denominational variety. All ostensibly in an effort to get clean and stay clean. And Bonhoeffer says to us, look at the one who calls us to follow him. He exerts and displays his holiness by getting his hands dirty. This was one of Bonhoeffer's favorite phrases. Following Jesus means not saying sin doesn't matter, but it does mean getting one's hands dirty. What does it look like when one who is justified by grace through faith follows the one who lets himself be stretched out on a Roman cross to achieve that justification? Bonhoeffer tried to do it by taking on an unruly group of inner city toughs to teach and to share life together with them. He tried to do it by accepting a call to pastor German expatriates in Barcelona. He tried to do it by stooping down to achieve the same level of children when he conversed with them and to really listen to what they said. Children were very attached to Bonhoeffer because of that. He tried to do it by really listening to children, what they had to say. He tried to do it by joining the conspiracy to assassinate a mad Fuhrer. And he offered all this to God for his judgment. Does it ever happen in our time and space? Does it happen when a believer responds to the call to take the gospel to Muslims in North Africa? Or a couple takes up residence in Laos to serve families of Christian pastors who've been taken away in the night? Is that what it looks like? Our dean gave us a long paper to read. Do you know the dean gives the faculty homework? 
He does. I thought I'd already earned my degree, but he gives us homework. I found this in it about a seminarian who went with a chaplain for the day to see what he did. There was a woman named Rachel dying of cancer, and they couldn't do anything to control her pain. On a busy floor with many other patients to care for, the nurses stayed away from the screaming. They were very generous nurses, willing to do anything they could to help. But when there was nothing left to do, they didn't feel comfortable staying with that woman while she screamed. The chaplain followed the sound. He entered and closed the door. He got down on his knees and started screaming with her. Weep with those who weep. She screamed, Oh God! And he screamed, Oh God, help her, help her! He held her hand. At least that way she knew that someone was praying with her. We were there for a long time. At at a certain point, she changed from, Why, oh God? Why, God? Oh, stop, stop! That changed into, I offer. I offer. I offer it. In the last moments of her life, despair became hope. I'm a nosy person and I ask my students to give me biographical sheets and tell me a little bit about themselves. Tell me what what they want to do with their lives. This is what one of our students said. I want to be present and be a mooring when theology of people meets the messiness of life and their life shifts and seems uncertain. I want to know, I want them to know that I see them and more than my presence, they have the presence of God who will never leave them nor forsake them. God is near even when we think that we're alone, forgotten and abandoned. There's a tempest out there. And there's a Lord who is sufficient for the tempest. It's hard to believe. So glad we have testimonies of people who tell us this is really true. It's hard to believe. The rhythm between be ye separate and go ye is not permanent. The oscillation between church and world shall end with a new world, a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Separation between church and world shall not survive the onslaught of the coming king who promises to take back what is his once and for all. That's what he's doing. Belongs to him. We who are now separated from the world and deployed back to the world are told this, that this is going to happen. Because we cannot bear up in this world without that promise. And we're not meant to, and we don't have to. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. There'll be no more crying, no more pain. Every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no more death. We'll be together with our crucified Lord, those wounds yet visible above and with each other.
But not yet. Not yet. In the meantime, the rhythm continues. Be ye separate and go. God grant that we shall obey both of these commands and so reflect that we are indeed His followers. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.